Hello, this is Jeff Johnston, the host of the Living Undeterred podcast. I'm really excited today. Uh, we have a, another individual that I happen to meet, meet on social media, um, Alyssa Tierney, and uh, had a chance to look at her profile. And uh, I'm impressed. I mean, the great thing about this journey I'm on is meeting some tremendous people that are awesome advocates. And we all have kind of an end game. We have the same passion, and that's to improve people's lives, yet at the same time, uh, maintain our well-being as well. So, Alyssa, it's great to meet you. Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. Thank you, um, Jeff. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and kind of what got you to where you're at? Um, I'm from New Jersey, and I have been in recovery for almost a decade. And uh, I've been in and out of treatment, uh, over 20 treatment centers, uh, which is kind mm. of normal. A lot, like yeah. almost everyone I know has been to like over 10. And then mm -hmm. at one point I was like, I'm not going to treatment. And my family was like, no, you have to go to treatment. And I didn't, mm -hmm. I didn't think I could do it. So I'm like, how would I want to handle this? So unfortunately I had to, I went to the hospital and I had to lie because I've been treated mm -hmm. like so poorly before. So I told them I was passing right. out. I hate lying. So I'm like, I you're not the first one to ever admit this on the show. I've had a number of people that say they had to get into help. So they had to make up some ailment because before I've been told go to treatment or I've been thrown into right. a hallway. So I said I was passing out and they admitted me for five days. They said your blood sugar is uh, low. It keeps spiking down. Um, they said your potassium is low. You have an infection. I was extremely dehydrated. So I was there for mm. five days um, getting help. And I wanted to tell them so bad what was really happening, but I just, I wanted to be treated like a human. So mm -hmm. they, they let me go. I was like crying. I was like, please keep me. So then I went home and I prayed for like days and I didn't want to get out of bed. I had no motivation. And then I decided, I'm like, I have to start reading about addiction. So right. I wrote down everything that was upsetting me. So I'm like, all right, get off social media. Like at that moment, it was upsetting me. Mm -hmm. Like going through Instagram, mm -hmm. seeing all my friends on vacation, seeing their kids. So I, I cut that out of my life right there. And then I started mm -hmm. reading about how to increase dopamine naturally. So I had no energy to go to the gym, but that was on my list of things to do. And then I just started researching vitamins and I looked at my my blood work from the hospital and I saw what I was deficient in. So I went and got mm -hmm. vitamins for that. And then every day I would walk to the library and I would get another book about addiction and I would start reading what was going on. Why am I not motivated? What did I mess up in my brain? And then I started mm -hmm. going from there and then I started feeling better. And then I just couldn't stop reading. Cause then I was like, I just needed to know more. Like it's my, right. it's my addiction. So I should know what's going on and what did I, mess up in my brain and how am I going to start feeling better? So I just started reading and then I needed to know the, what was going on with the uh, doctors, what were, what were, I know my barriers, but I wanted to see what mm -hmm. the other barriers work. Why weren't, why aren't any of my friends getting better? So then I started looking back. I was in a recovery community for four years and I was okay. really involved in this recovery community. Um, I lived in sober living, a bunch of houses, different girls. And I looked back at everybody that was in the community and I was like, who did well 
and who didn't. And then I was looking back and I'm like, everyone that did well, there wasn't a recipe to how they did well. Right. They found a purpose. Their life got right. better in some aspect. So then I looked at that. And then I also saw that people were switching addictions and not even realizing mm. it. And I had been doing that right. as well. So I noticed yeah. people were switching to quick dopamine fixes. So it was either a relationship. It was uh, relationships, gambling, shopping, food. These were common right. themes among everyone in the community. So I was looking at that. So I'm like, when I, I know like in withdrawal, we talk about the physical symptoms a lot, but we don't mm -hmm. talk about the mental. And a lot of the times right. I was withdrawing, I'm like, I've had the flu before and I got through that. I'm like, and a lot right. of people have had COVID. So I'm like, it's it's the physical paired with the mental because at that moment you have no dopamine and your brain is gonna do anything to get dopamine at that moment. So you get a quick, you, it, the fastest way to get dopamine everyone knows is the substance. Right. So I was looking at that. So I just started like reading and seeing everyone's barriers and where I could help. So, I mean, right now I can't change policy and I can't change right. the treatment model or regulations, but I found a way right now to like maybe change the stigma. So, you know, it seems to me that the ability for you to self-assess midstream like that, to be in rehab for so many times, and then all of a sudden just kind of decide to take your inquisitive mind and say, I want to figure out why. I am this way and that makes you kind of an anomaly. Um, most people that struggle, they are not that interested to know the why they just don't want to stop yeah, I'm, um, because yeah. they don't, it's like, it's like, I don't want to find out the truth because the truth within will reveal my weakness. And so I, I look at people in my life that I, that they went to recovery. First of all, it wasn't voluntary. Both times my son and my wife both went, it wasn't because they wanted to go it was because they kind of had to go. Yeah. Um, and that mindset right there, if you're not open-minded to getting better, then, you know, it's going to be hard, but are, are you, were you always hardwired to be curious in, in things like that for you? Or is that just something to just, you finally realize if I don't do something, I'm going to die. That's exactly what happened. And usually I hand my life over to someone who is trained and I just go with the flow. I, I do pretty, I'm so, I'm a really good student in rehab. I do whatever they tell me to. But right. at this moment, I'm like, I've done this 20 times where I've given my life That's over to amazing. somebody. And I don't think I ever really sat and thought about, I mean, I've heard like what you, what part of your brain, like the neurotransmitters and the dopamine. And I've, I've heard all that, but I never really sat and thought about what was going on inside me and about addiction. Right. I never like, so then once I started reading about it, and seeing how I could fix my brain naturally, then I just couldn't stop reading. Then I had to know. Everything. Now, were you were you sober during this time of trying to figure out what was going yeah, on? Do you I, think that allowed you? Think the fact you were sober allowed you to be open to some of these things? Yeah. I, because if you had been under the influence, you probably wouldn't have went down any of those. It was roads. I when I got home from the hospital. I just I every day I woke up. I just didn't want to get out of my bed, and I didn't want to. I just kept being, I just kept praying. I'm like, please like be right. motivated. But then I, when I, once I realized that part of my brain right now, isn't the reward center, the motivation isn't there. Mm -hmm. I started looking at ways that I could increase dopamine. 
So then that's how mm -hmm. I started with that. And then day by day, I just, then I got really invested because then I wanted, so now then I wanted to read how, what the barriers are for right. addiction doctors. I know sometimes right. with my counselors, I know they have to, a lot of their time they're writing notes to submit into uh, insurance companies so you can get another day. Right. in treatment. So I know I just wanted to see where I mean, I, I've been passionate like this before in 2016, I uh, wrote to the White House, I was only at yeah. I was only at five treatment centers at this point, but I just knew something was wrong. So I got a letter back from President Obama. But uh, this was 2016, he was about to leave the office, I'm shocked he even wrote back to me. But my I was saying, that that each hospital should have a detox unit because at that mm -hmm. point there weren't that many detoxes so if you couldn't get in for three or four days they told you to go to the hospital then when you go to the hospital they say they can't help you so i i right. do think there i do think as far as detox goes i think there's a lot of there's a lot of medical other medical issues that are going on a lot of people are so yeah. dehydrated. They there there's yeah. so many things that I think I I personally think that the treatment model that we're going we've been going on for years and the detox and the protocols need to change, but I can't do that right now. So Yeah. I I have a couple of questions. Uh first of all, I love an addict. Where'd that come from? And I'm I am wearing your bracelet. Oh, you so thank it? you very much for yeah, I got them right here. I think appreciate you sending them to me. Um, I appreciate that. Um, but where'd that where'd that come from? That idea. Someone had sent me a link to a Facebook page uh, with the wristband, and the girl's name was Avery, and my daughter's name is Avery. So they were like, "Is this you?" And I'm like, "No." So I read it, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I love this idea um, for a couple of reasons." A the girl's name is Avery, so that's close mm -hmm. to my heart, and then. I contacted the aunt and I said, Hey, can I get involved in this? You know, I do PR and marketing and she's like, Oh, we don't really have a budget. And I'm like, no, I, I want to do this for free. Like I, as long as I could be a part of the nonprofit side of it, I, I just right. want, I'm like, I love this idea. Um, and mm -hmm. one of the other reasons I love this idea is because when I went to treatment, um, I had 12, I had lived with 11 girls in college at Rutgers and, uh, they got a bracelet and this, they sent me one and they were all wearing it while I was in treatment. And the whole time I just kept looking at it. It was like one of them, like it was one of the best gifts I ever got knowing that I had support at home. And I, it's a reminder. Yeah. The whole time I was in treatment, I looked at that bracelet knowing that they were supporting me. And it, mm -hmm. it was one of the things that got me through that. So that was the second reason why I love this idea. And then another reason why is because of, I think live strong those bracelets. I, yeah. I love that idea. And it also not only did it help raise money, but it showed us all how cancer affects everyone. And I think that was right. such an important message with those, those wristbands was that addiction is affecting almost every family that I know. And every human on the planet. Exactly. And I think that countries that adopt the the compassion and love for addicts, mm -hmm. their addiction crises are shrinking over time. And instead of, mm -hmm. I, for a long time, I personally lived with shame and, uh, you know, we punish, stigmatize and shame addiction. 
And I think we have to realize that the substance is just like a symptom of a deeper problem. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people don't want to be present in their own lives. And that's something we need to work on because especially when I was in the recovery community, I noticed when someone's life got better in some aspect, like one of my, one of my friends left uh, sober living after a month. She, it wasn't for her. Um, you know, it was a lot of the girls in the house at that time were, were negative. She didn't want to live there. Everyone told her, you have to stay. You have to stay if you want a chance. She left and she ended up starting a crystal business and she got very into mm-hmm. crystals and, and sure. And that was, that's her <clears throat> yep. purpose. And she is doing so well in life because she found something that she loves and that's so important. It's something exactly. And I think, and we were talking about the, the complete mental uh, health package. Yeah. And yeah. That's yep. just, that is so important in meaning and purpose uh-huh. having a, you know, f- more than like spirituality, more than relationships, more than connectivity. It's like, you know, at some point, if you haven't figured out what your meaning and purpose is, there's that gaping hole. It's like, and then people fill that with alcohol or drugs or, gambling or whatever addiction, but I want to go back to your days in rehab. Um, looking at your assessment now, why wasn't rehab successful for you for so long? I mean, what, 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 what didn't Um, it work for you? I know everybody's different, but I ask myself that all the time. I really do. I think every time I think in the beginning, there was a point in my life that I started self-medicating. And it happened to be my marriage was toxic. So I was going to treatment and learning all these great skills and, and then going back into a toxic environment. So it didn't matter. It didn't matter what I was learning at that moment. I could, I was learning everything. I was, I was going to so many treatment centers. I was going back into a toxic environment. An environment yeah so i think that is yeah. that is one of aftercare is so important mm-hmm. it's such an, an important aspect do they talk about that in re i've never been in rehab my wife was quite a bit but do they talk about like my son was in prison and that's kind of like rehab <laughs> and then you're released to society kind of like rehab does yeah. and there isn't a very good bridge there to to bridge my son so you know he was gone within 60 days of being out of prison so rehab, the recidivism rate is so high. When people get out of rehab, they end up going back. You said like 20 times. I mean, that that's not abnormal. You know, five, six, seven, eight times is probably the average at least. Exactly. And sometimes I, and I, sometimes I think if in those 30 days you worked at, at setting someone's resume up, getting them set situated mm-hmm. for the life outside of the bubble of rehab, the financial life too, you know, what you have to do with your bills and stuff. Cause most people in recovery are destitute financially. They're either in divorce stage or they've been divorced or they've blown all their money on drugs and alcohol. They don't have, you know, 50,000 in an IRA somewhere they can go tap. Um, no. that's probably, you know, very common for people to get released from rehab, literally have no really place to go back to because the people that really care for them probably aren't going to let him back in. No. Uh, I know I couldn't let my son back in the house. So, you know, I didn't want to enable him by allowing him back in. Yeah. 
It's tough. It's really hard. I think there's a lot of similarities of people being released from, from rehab facilities and those that are incarcerated being released. And, and there's like, there's needs to be a support system yeah. to get them kind of on their feet a little bit before they get thrown out there in the real Definitely. world. Definitely. When I was in, when I was in the recovery community, I finally was like, all right, I'll, I'll go to sober living. So I went into sober living and, um, after a while I started just noticing certain things. Um, I said to, you know, the house manager, I'm like, you know, these girls are so lost. I'm like, they don't know what they want to do with their lives. I'm like, mm -hmm. their self-esteem is so low right now because I bet, I mean, you've been told, we've been told our whole entire lives, drugs are bad. If you do drugs, you're bad. And the shame and stigma attached to that. That's why I love this, the wristbands and all, what it stands for. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm like, I found somebody who was going to come in and mentor them. And she said she was going to do it for free. She mentors women uh, who start businesses. Um, so she's, I told her our situation. I told her what was going on. I said, will you come in? So she's like, yeah, I'll come in for free. So I told the house manager, she went and told the owners of the company and they didn't want to do it. And I got so upset about it. And I talked to my sponsor who works on the insurance side side of the company. And she was like, Alyssa, that's not going to make them money. This is a business. And I just took that so personally. I was so upset. I'm mm -hmm. like, my friend's lives are not a business. Like I know that it is a business. I know rehabs are a business, but at the same time, like, like you, aftercare, you need to like set up a support, like empower these gr girls. Some of them don't even know what they want to do with their life. I always feel like, there's, right. I feel like for women, there's two options. Well, at least in my community, it was either you were going to be a waitress or go back into the recovery community. If you were a guy, you go to construction huh. or back into the recovery community and be into treatment. Right. And I'm like, you only right. really have a couple options. I'm like, that's why I think finding your purpose or finding what you want to do with your life is so important in aftercare. And just there's a balancing act, you know, it's like you can have meaning and purpose, but if you can't make your car payment, that's stressful. Yeah. Or if you look in the mirror and you look in the mirror and you feel like you're 50 pounds overweight. Um, that's why I talked about earlier about, you know, the projects we're working on to try to put this planning service together. So people could look at the components of a good mental health, which would be, you know, your, your physical nature, your financial, so your important. spiritual, which, which is your connection to whatever you're connected to. Um, and then, and then the fourth element, which kind of just sits out there, uh, people forget about is your meaning and purpose. So it's hard. It's very difficult because there's, a, I, I just keep thinking of my wife when she was, when I picked her up at that facility, you know, I didn't have to go to rehab. I just quit cold Turkey one time and never drank mm -hmm. again. And this is after being, this is 30 something years of being an alcoholic. So I couldn't relate to what my wife was going through because I didn't struggle. And that was, that was a naive approach as a husband, because now later on she's gone. You know, I, I look back now at all those moments I had to really be more understanding. Um, but I wasn't, I was your typical spouse that was kind of mad. It's, I'm like, why, why are so you doing hard. this? Why are you doing this to destroy our family? Why, you know, why? And so now in hindsight, I'm like, yep. Yeah, I, I, I certainly missed some opportunities where I, I um, and I'm not trying to, you know, ask for forgiveness and all this stuff, but it's like, you know, I look for lessons. So in my life, when something happens and I don't torture myself with, I should have been a better husband or 
why, what if I, I think to myself, what did I, what can I learn from this event? I can't bring Seth and Prudence back and you can't bring loved ones back either, but that shouldn't prohibit us from honoring them in the way we live, Yeah, you know? And so for me, whenever I, which is very rarely, I mean, since I've been sober, I, I probably, I'm not lying. I haven't had one urge to drink. Yeah. And, but I've, I mean, what I mean, urge is I never looked at a beer or a glass of wine going, I mean, I'll just have a half a glass. I mean, that, that would be an urge. I, I look at it and I'm going like F you, you know, it's like, I, you took some important people in my life and I'm not going to contribute to you. Yeah. So for me, it's an adversarial relationship with alcohol or I hate it. I, it took, I'm not afraid of drinking and going back into being alcoholic. I'm not worried about that at all. As a matter of fact, I know fairly certain I could have a drink and I wouldn't even convince myself I broke some streak because I don't keep score. Yeah. I just know when I quit. I know the day I quit. I don't know how many days it is in between. But I saw, yeah, I saw. I, I just kind of realized, you know what? I don't want to have the same, you know, me versus them. I'm in this torturous battle. I'm in this sobriety battle. It's like, for me, it just, I didn't want to play that narrative. Now, again, watching my wife really struggle drinking, I have a lot of sympathy, a lot of pity, a lot of empathy, a lot of compassion, all those emotions for those people that are in the grips of, of, uh, specifically alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and my heart goes out to them. I wish everybody had the ability just to quit cold Turkey. Yeah. It'd be so it'd be, it'd be great. But for those that can't, what support systems can we provide as a society? Um, what bridges can we give them when they are going from, you know, uh, stage to stage in their own sober life or quest to be sober. And if they fall back, what's there to hold, what's there to protect them, you know? And I, um, to say I'm disenfranchised with the whole recovery space would be probably an understatement. I'm, I'm very frustrated with the inability for our society to to try to show people there are better ways to live their lives than to live it in pain and suffering and torture all the time. I know. I know. And I don't know what the right answer is. I don't know. I'm still looking. Yeah. Why I do the podcast? I mean, I don't know. I've been to great treatment centers and I've been to ones that like, everyone kept telling me, go to Florida, go to Florida. Like my family was convinced that if I went to Florida, it was going to save me. So I finally, to appease everyone in my life, I went to to Florida. I went to Florida (laughs) because I'm like, all right, this is the epicenter of recovery. And it was a really bad experience for me. Like they were using, they were, people were calling me trying to convince me to go to their center and saying not to go to the one that I went to. And I was so confused and I was so sick and I was so at the lowest point of my life. And you just wanted help. You just wanted help. And then I, and people were like bidding war over you trying to get, it was a bidding war over me. And I'm like, this, it was just, it was, it was not a good experience for me at all. And, um, I thought like the better insurance I had, the more opportunities I would have to get better treatment, but it kind of made me a bigger target sometimes, not all the time, but the, the place that I did go down to in Atlantic city, the program itself is amazing. It's, it's a holistic um, center and you eat organically every day. You, you work out after the, you go into treatment, the beginning morning is, um, all group therapy. And then in the afternoons, mm-hmm. you always do something either artistic, you go to the, they, they have a farm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a great program. It was just the aftercare program. You kind of just get thrown. So you for 30 days, you're built up, you're working out, you're eating organically, you're cooking. Um, 
great program. And then everyone gets sent to sober living with a $1,500 balance right when you walk in the door. And I just started noticing like no one has the means to go mm-hmm. join a gym right away or eat organically. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to like find ways that we could create, you know, healthy and envi- the healthy environment where we were living. So that's like, that's one of the, you know, things I would like to, you know, work on. But right now there's so mm-hmm. much I, I can do. So right now I could just change the stigma. I mean, we keep saying change the stigma. And yeah. I know a lot of people will say, well, we're trying to say substance use disorder, which I love. I, I just couldn't. I don't. I, I don't use fit that. it on the wristband. <laughs> I don't use that. I came up with my own term. Because I don't like the word disorder. I know I, it, it's a uh, it's a it's a it's a defeating word. It's a uh, it's a label. It's a um, and then we're going and then like we're this, blaming on the like substance this, again. We're trying to but. change stigma and we change words and we we add disorder. Yeah. So here's what I do. I just call it substance use distress. Yeah, I mean, I just and and distress is like you're waving your hand. You're just a stress. A disorder sounds like it's an abnormality. Like you're like you're it's like a demon attached to the back of you, of you, of you. And it's, it's embedded in you. It's a, it's a disorder. It's something we can extract. If I just say it's distress, it's substance use distress. I think to me, that's a lot more applicable to what people go through when they battle substance use. Um, I just, I don't even like a disorder with attention deficit. I just don't like, I don't like putting disorder on, on words that, you know what, you know what addiction is, you know what depression is, you know what anxiety is, you know what, um, uh, it, it, all it is, is just makes us human. Exactly. What, what's, what's so, what's abnormal with everything I just said, so, you know what it is, it's, it's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Some of us have a really high levels of attention deficit like myself mm-hmm. and some have really low, but we all have a te- I mean, to say one kid has attention deficit and you don't, I know that right there starts segregating. You start saying there's the, the, the affected and the, the non-infected, the ones with the virus, the ones without, you start playing that game where you're starting to separate and you do this with kids. So kids go to school thinking I have a disorder. All my friends don't because they, first of all, no one told them they have a disorder, so they can't have one, but I'm taking a pill called Adderall and they're not. So I, I'm effed up. I I'm the problem child. You know, I'm the one that everyone talks about. Mm-hmm. And it's a mindset. It's like, why can't I had a lady one time that reached out to me and everyone that watches my podcast has heard this story. So they're probably going to turn it off and listen to Joe Rogan now. But the reality is, <laughs> the reality is I had a lady reach out to me one time on Facebook and she said, you know, Jeff, I love what you're doing, uh, but I'm really struggling. My daughter died. She took her life and um, I, f- I have survivor's guilt. I went to see a therapist and um, I have survivor's guilt and I feel like, you know, she did it because of me and I should be gone, not her what do you think I should do? And I'm just a dad from Iowa, man. I'm, I'm not that smart. I'm not a clinician. I don't have any medical background. The closest thing I'm to a doctor is my dad's a doctor. That's as close as I get to being a doctor. And so I thought to myself, well, I'm going to give her an honest answer. So I said, I said, how about this? I said, for the next week, tell yourself you have survivor opportunities, okay. not survivor guilt. Because somebody anointed you that word, and I don't know who gave power. Who did you give power to to tell, to have them tell you that you have a disorder or you have a problem when when you're human? Mm-hmm. Guilt is a human shame. All these are human emotions. We 
we want to act like people are freaking cyborgs and, and, and those that, um, some of us have these emotions. Some don't, we all have depression. We all have all these things. So the, she got back with me a week later and said, I'm amazed how my, once I, once I thought to myself, I have survivor opportunity. So I could write a book. That's a survivor opportunity. Mm -hmm. I could go on a podcast. That's a survivor opportunity. Mm -hmm. Get this damn word guilt out of your vocabulary because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You're human. Yeah. You know, we, we all have survivors guilt. Um, we all have trauma. We all have depression. Mm -hmm. Some of us have found ways to just don't participate. I, I jokingly say I tried depression a few times. I didn't like it. So I quit. Yeah. And, I, but I'm almost, I'm almost serious. Yeah. That's, that's my mindset. I don't want to be depressed. So I don't go there. And I, I was saying, I'm like, I think as humans, we want, we want kids to behave a certain way. We want adults to mm -hmm. behave a certain way. And then when they, when they don't, we want to medicate them. We want a quick or put them in a box. Right. Fast. We, cause my, right. my dad, my parents came here from Ireland and my dad worked when I was little seven days a week, which I thought was normal, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize every dad doesn't work seven days a week. So <laughs> then he retired and we were so excited because we're like, dad, now you can golf all the time. And we were so excited for him to retire because he worked so hard his whole life. And then he right. was depressed and we didn't know we didn't even put it together that now he doesn't have a purpose yeah. every day. He's not going to work. Anymore. Right. Exactly. So we didn't know what exactly to do. Right. We were like, dad, you need to see a doctor. We need to medicate him. Like, this is so weird. Like we didn't mm. know what to medicate him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a natural reaction. And then though. my dad was on a medication for the side effects for that medication. And by the end, I think he took something for to sleep, to wake up. To, it was like, yeah. ridiculous and i think it's we're so insane. quick to i'm not saying in any way that medication sometimes isn't needed but it doesn't have to be the first thing i think we, especially with our kids especially, especially, I had especially ADHD. with our kids yeah, that wasn't even an option for my parents i we all me, did my dad would course. just say go out in the woods and fight your brothers <laughs> you know get some sticks and go play cowboys and indians i mean or go get, get in your bikes and jump over trash cans i mean that's what you did in the seventies yeah. growing up in the eighties. And it's like, you know, today it's like, you know, kids are just, um, watching videos. They're like you said, they're on TikTok, seeing the Kardashians and seeing people seeing 21 year old YouTubers making 40 million a year. And they're like, why aren't I a 21 year old YouTuber? Well, because you're not, I know. and they're not making $20 million. My daughter. So, <laughs> so yeah. So I've, I've twins, boy and a girl. And when they were little, I remember they wanted to be, Avery wanted to be a vet and Logan wanted to be a fireman. So I'm like, of course we all did. When yeah. you're little, you, you want to help people. That's what you want to do when you're a little. And now my son wants mm -hmm. to be a famous soccer player. And my daughter just told me she wants a YouTube channel to host it. So I'm like, it's just yeah. crazy how they get a little bit older. And like our definition of success is a certain thing. Like success has to be a big right. house, nice things. It's always right. things. So I'm like, I think if we change the definition of success, Maybe it's just helping some, like helping someone. And I think yeah. as like a society, like, so if you go to the website, iloveanaddict.org, this girl mm -hmm. is like, I'm, I, she's basically my boss. I have a eight year old CEO. Actually, she's going to be nine on, on Halloween. And she's just, oh, cool. she's so sweet. This little, she's so sweet. And her idea is so simple. She, is basically like, well, if celebrities and everyone wears these wristbands, then people won't think that my mom is a bad person. 
And I just, I love that idea, especially mm -hmm. like she's so young. She doesn't even, she doesn't even understand that when like celebrities embrace something in society, like it catches on and we all do. Oh yeah. And countries that have, we don't even have to try this out in another country. Countries that have adopted mm -hmm. this idea of compassion and love to addicts and putting all their resources in bettering their lives, like Portugal and mm -hmm. Switzerland. It's a success. We don't even have to test it out. Like it right. is a success when you show compassion and love towards addicts and there, and we take away the stigma and the shame. We don't have that in any other disease. Like you wouldn't think twice about wearing a pink uh, save the Tata shirt. Like you wouldn't think twice mm -hmm. about it, but I'm sure like, and mm -hmm. I know because I like, the word the word addict it's just yeah for a while yeah i mean there's real. a lot to do with I label i mean I yeah with la labels and stigmas have just been the, the inability for us to get past like you said i mean you take a um you know a person who say was uh you know eating really poor foods and they develop diabetes or they develop something disease related that's primarily based on their food not their genetics yeah. And the outpouring of support, the GoFundMe's, the, the the fundraisers, you know, trying to help this person. And you get someone in the same age bracket that, you know, gets a gets in a car accident because they were drunk or, um, you know, does a felony or something because they were high or or they develop, um, you know, let's say they get AIDS or something from uh, intravenous uh, drug use with um, with needles. It's like, well, they kind of deserved it. It's like, well, you know, but they don't understand that that what the reason they got in that car and, and they drove is because they have an addiction problem and they couldn't say no, just like the person eating pizza couldn't say no. And now they're hundred pounds overweight and they're diabetic. It's like, but they, they get sympathy, they get empathy, but the person who's battling addiction and substance abuse just gets the scourge of society. It's like, well, they kind of, I'm sure there are people when you see an overdose, I'm sure there are people who say, well, you know, they had to, they had to know, you know, they had to know when they were doing these things that this could happen. And, why couldn't they just have seen? Well, it's not that freaking simple. No, it's not, not that it, simple. You know, when you eat dessert, yeah. that it could affect your cholesterol. Eighty-two percent of all adult medical issues are could be self-regulated through diet and exercise. I know. So, eighty-two percent of adults that bitch and moan about what they have wrong with them, and their and their ailments, they're getting knee yeah. replacements and back surgeries and all that stuff because because there's a high probability that's their lifestyle. But we don't we don't look down on them. We feel sorry for them. Actually, we want to we want to we want to help them. Yeah. Well, why can't we do that with people that are battling drug addictions and substance abuse and alcoholism? Why can't we have the same compassion and care for them as a society instead of looking at them as oh, it's a choice mm -hmm. they they chose to do that. I know. You know, and some do, and like me, I chose to quit, but a lot of people can't. Yeah, and I think I mean I think if we if we if you want to be present in your life, I then you're not you're you're basically we're getting mad at people for self-medicating out of failed mental health system so we're getting yeah. mad at people and then that's what it is we're, we're everyone's self-medicating because they don't want to be present in their own lives so we need to yeah that's so true we need to make sure people want to be present and right now with fentanyl it's just it's it's it changed everything changed the game it changed it changed the mid game it took the goalpost and just slid them across the field during the game so yeah fentanyl 
Um, I didn't know what fentanyl was the day my son died. Never heard of the word. I knew heroin, you know, who doesn't know what heroin is. Yeah. And then when I saw the death certificate, you know, the, the fentanyl, I'm like, well, what's fentanyl? And then all of a sudden I started being aware. It's like, if someone said, think of a pink car, you, you, that's fine. But then all of a sudden that next day you're going to see pink cars. Okay. Cause now you're thinking about mm-hmm. them. Well, fentanyl, the same way. Once I learned about fentanyl, now it's everywhere. All these people are dying. And so I looked at the numbers and I'm like, and it went from 46,000 years, Seth died to 108 last year. And, but we all know more about what fentanyl is, but the deaths keep going up. And that's what got, has me the most, that's, that has my most concern out there. Alyssa is this raising awareness campaign isn't working. No, it hasn't worked raising awareness in certain areas, maybe breast cancer, things like that. It's, it's worked, but when it comes to addiction and and especially fentanyl, it ain't working. So I think we got to take an approach where we're bringing attention to these issues and it's a whole different psychological mindset. Yeah. Raising, raising awareness is a little bit more in your face. Mm -hmm. Uh, posters of my deceased child walks over at the white house, you know, banging saying, you know, Biden caused these deaths. I mean, that that's raising awareness, mm-hmm. but that doesn't work. Yeah. It has never worked and it doesn't work. It just creates a lot of a culture of angry people exactly. blaming each other. Yeah. And, and but bringing attention kids, to a Like we're just, I think bringing attention to is a more positive, uh, cultural way we can talk about these things and really, create a shift in the mindset of how people are approaching these things by kind of luring people in with compelling stories. So a podcast like this show allows you to kind of talk about your unique situation. I inject mine. We share people watching this can, can relate to it and they're not going to walk away all mad. Mm -hmm. And that's what raising awareness does. It creates anger. It's in your face. And I think, I think, I think as a advocate for mental health, we need to just kind of put raising awareness in a box and, um, and just put it away. And now we focus on bringing attention to, mm-hmm. you know, there's a reason why my RV around the country didn't have the face of my son and my wife on it. That's raising awareness. Yeah. I wanted to bring attention to, so I called it the mental health magnet living undeterred. It creates conversation. If I drive around the country with my son's face on there with a, you know, a needle picture, people are going to be turned off by that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like my youngest son who's gay. I said, you know, Roman, because he wants to be an advocate for LBGTQ rights and all that. And I said, it's awesome. I, I love you yeah. for that, but bring it, bring attention to this. Don't raise awareness. Yeah. What, what are you, ra- what are you raising awareness for? Mm-hmm. You know, dry, you know, telling, shoving all this in people, that's not going to work. Yep. What you want to do is just be the best gay man. You can be, be an advocate for gay rights, get involved, mm-hmm. Promote love, promote empathy, compassion, and you'll, you'll raise awareness just by bringing attention to it. Yep. Exactly. You know, like I, ne- I never, I never, I'm in a million years thought this was going to be my life. My life was going exactly right. as planned. I, I, yep. drugs were around me in college and high school. I just didn't, I was afraid. Mostly pot. Like everything was around me. I mean, yeah. ecstasy was like big back then. I didn't do it. I just, I, I right. liked my life. My life was going exactly as I, I had planned it. I, I, I played sports. I was good at sports. I got good grades. I was at Rutgers. I, 
uh, had a journalism degree. I got a great job right mm. after that. I started working at, at NFL Films. Like everything was going. That's right. Everything was going as planned. I didn't need to seek out anything at that time, and I didn't think my life mm -hmm. was going in this direction. And I think I'm. I mean, I know that. Back then, I think when I thought of addiction, I'm like, well, if I lost my house and I was living on the streets, I'd stop using that substance. That's how I thought. Of this. Right. That is exactly how I thought of this. I did not yeah. think farther than that. I just thought if this is causing so many problems in your life, then you should probably stop drinking or doing that. I was very I was naive back then. I did not. I think we all are. And, and, and you just don't you just don't wake up an addict either. Mm -hmm. You don't wake up an alcoholic. It's insidious. It's just, I look back at, at every person I know that, that now is in recovery and they're sober. And I was around a lot of these people when we all started drinking together too, you know, early on in eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th grade. And it just sneaks up on you. All of a sudden you're 35 and you're like, wow, I didn't realize I drink six days a week. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't realize it. And, and, um, that's the insidious nature of, addiction is it just, you don't wake up an addict. No. You don't just get up and all of a sudden you're, uh, an alcoholic. Yep. Um, let me ask you a question before we end the show. Where does like, where does like trauma come into play? Like, um, childhood trauma. And, um, I did, Dr. Gabor Mate is a big advocate of, um, all addiction stems from childhood trauma. And then before we leave, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, Dr. Ar Arun Gupta. <laughs> Who we both we both know, but I like to end with talking about uh, that a little bit. But let's talk about um, trauma. What's your thoughts on how that works with addiction? See, with I had, easy question, right? <laughs> yeah. So I had I had a great childhood. My parents, I did too. I had such a happy, great, wonderful childhood. And then sometimes in treatment, they were like, "Well, was it really that?" happy yeah. and i'm like yeah <laughs> what are you forgetting i'm, like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> right. and then like they would try yep. to get me to remember something traumatic and i'm like i nothing happened and they're like well and that's terrible they were, like, they were trying to do that they're like because your parents didn't fight is because you ex and now that you're so you expect no one to fight like they were trying to make me think that something was wrong wow which is not always the it's not always that's their job though but that's their job yeah so that that's what came with that but and then i always think that like so i i think detox should be more medical i think people mm -hmm. should be getting ivs and their underlying issues i mean when you go to detox you see a doctor for five minutes you get set on a taper depending on what you what you're coming in for and then you taper down and then you go to treatment and then you're sick half of the time in treatment. So I mm -hmm. feel like if detox was more medical and you were getting IVs and you were treating the underlying issues and you were actually starting to fix what's going on up here. And then by the time you got to mm -hmm. treatment, you start learning, wait, you're, you, instead of getting your, the quick fixes, like a relationship and detox and treatment mm -hmm. is crazy. People are always getting into relationships and you're just like, what is happening? Like, what? <laughs> so um, instead of that, I'm like, I feel like in treatment, they, it should be 30 days of setting up. You should have a life coach or a, a case manager or social worker along with that. And then I think aftercare is where you can start getting into the trauma. And then by that point, you can start yeah, talking about sense. that stuff. Because I don't think that you're, I mean, if you, if you're half the, when you get to treatment, you're usually so sick. 
and you're so tired mm-hmm. because your blood sugar is so off balance that it, it takes like two weeks into treatment, which is only 30 days. Two weeks into mm-hmm. treatment, you start to feel better and you're starting to retain information. Like I love, I love Ryan Hampton too. And I love how he kind of compares sometimes to cancer. Cause if you think about it, what if you took everyone with cancer, you put them into treatment where you just talk about your hair falling out and how sick you feel and how mm-hmm. you could stop cancer from spreading. And you're not actually like, there's no medical part really of treatment. You're just kind of talking. So I think like aftercare is where you get into like the trauma and things that happen. Yeah, that makes sense. And that stuff. So where does, where do you think some of the new alternative ways of looking at mental health and specifically things like um, TMS and um, MERT technology, which would be your brainwave technology. And then you couple that with ketamine and Mm -hmm. psilocybin and you know, psychedelics, which, you know, have really isn't new. I mean, the brainwave technology is new, mm-hmm. but not the psychedelics. They've been around thousands yeah. of years. Um, indigenous people have been using them for a long time. So plant-based medicines, um, not going to go away. It's been here. Mm-hmm. It's part of the earth. What's your thoughts on, on these? Now, again, That's- you start talking about a psychedelic drug. They, you know, people get like, well, why would you do a drug to get off drugs? It's yeah. like, well, MAT, I mean, yeah, they methadone is, is, you know, that's, that's what we're doing with methadone. Because I'm reading so much about this. That's how they started treating people before prohibition. And like when that's how they were treating people, they're, they're getting people off their substances by tapering them off with the substance. But now when I look into the, the low dose ketamine treatments and all that stuff, it, they're fixing the neurotransmitters in your brain, which has been so destroyed from your use. Mm. So I actually was looking into that mm-hmm. and NAD, I started taking that because that NAD also does that. What's that? Um, NAD is a vitamin and they do, you could do like IV vitamins. Oh, okay. So NAD is, I think that's how okay. like Justin Bieber got clean. I just read that. But it, but NAD, no, but yeah, NAD does work. So, I mean, I can't really afford right now the vitamin treatments, but I've been taking the vitamin NAD and I've been noticing such a change. So that does the same kind of thing that the low-dose ketamine is doing. It's fixing that part of your brain um, impulse and your reward center. So it's, it's fixing that for you. So, I mean, right now, I just, I think, I think we just, we need to look at, it can't be so black and white. Like you go to detox, you taper, you go to treatment. Everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. Then you do this, this, and this, and that's how you recover. And if you don't do that, then it's your fault. No, like we have to look at all these options. Um, Anything that- We're past the patients. We're past all this. (laughs) Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, we we are, we're desperate stages right now as a society. We- (sighs) We have to look at every possible alternative from, you know, like I said, psychedelics, brainwave technology, exercise, diet, um, meditation, um, uh, audiovisual stimulation, things, you know, everything's on the table because if you and I could sit here and say, well, got great news, you know, depression's getting better, suicidal ideation's better, the suicides are down, overdoses are down, alcohol deaths are down. Um, people aren't vaping kids in high schools aren't vaping much anymore. Marijuana use is dropping. Wow. That's great. Everything's working. Problem is 
nothing's working. <laughs> Every statistic's worse just about than it was five, 10 years ago. So if we just keep adding more therapists, keep building more rehab facilities, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been saying that. I'm like, we have, I'm like, I can't, I don't know where the money, I don't know where the money in each state's going towards. And I, and I know like to create more treatment centers, but if the treatment, if, if, if a certain type of cancer treatment wasn't working and people were dying, we would look at the treatment, wouldn't we? We would look at the treatment and we would right, revamp right. the treatment of that. So right. I, I think we really do right. need to look at the the 30-day model and re- rethink that and think like, how do we fix what's yeah. going on in your brain? Because if you have no impulse control, I don't care what techniques you're teaching me and what breathing techniques I'm right. getting, it goes right. out the window Right. If I don't, if I'm not fixing the reward well, center for kids, I know, I know. And this, uh, I mean, you got the prefrontal cortex isn't formed by 25, you know? So you're talking to 18 year olds about impulse control and they're under the influence and their prefrontal cortex isn't even close to being fully developed. I know. That's why they can't, they don't have impulse control. That's why teenagers make rash decisions exactly. and they think it's the right decision at the time, exactly. or they don't even think about, they don't even think about consequences. All right. So before we leave, um, let's talk about Dr. Gupta oh, because he's a good personal friend. I'm honored to be on the rotary, the rotary board with him. I read his book. Um, I've had him a guest it's on my podcast. So, so uh, I know you kind of been, became enamored with some of his work. Yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you've learned from him? Well, I want to, I wanted to read his book because I, Obviously, I want to know what everyone's barriers are, like why certain, like why certain things can't happen. So I, when I after I read his book, I'm like, mm-hmm. I didn't know all these regulations were were happening, especially with um, prescribing mm-hmm. Suboxone. Um, your first year, you can only have like mm-hmm. 38 patients, and I'm like, if it's if it's easier to prescribe yeah. an opioid than it is for the cure, then something is not right. And then he, in his book, he goes on to say, there's no incentives mm-hmm. for people to want to go into the addiction field. And that is so sad. That's so sad. We don't have enough doctors. Yeah, right it now. is sad. Plus even not just financially, not just financially, but just the, the mental strain it causes. I know, I know, you know, this too. I know a lot of mental health advocates that I meet that when I talk to them, you know, late at night on their phone, they call me and we're having talks they break down. They're like, I, I don't feel like I'm making a difference. I don't get paid enough. I, I, I just, my own life is a wreck. And that's sad when you see the industry and physicians are like that when they came down with all these, all these restrictions and all these hoops they had to jump through the quality of life of a physician had to drop immensely. So you had a lot less young physicians coming into the business, many retiring early, getting out. Um, and Dr. Gupta's book, the preventable epidemic it's is a it's must so read. Good. Um, and I'm very honored to have a chance to work with him on the Rotary International um, like Action Group uh, uh, Committee. I know, I know he's and he's so passionate about I helping know. people. That's what I really like about him. And, and again, it's the preventable students. epidemic. You and I both read it. Yeah, and he sees. Yeah, he, he sees past the addiction, and that's. I think that's what everyone suffering from this wants to be seen as. We just we want people. I feel like. The wristband says, I love an addict, but I feel like it, it means like, we love you, we value you and we're on your side. Like that's, that's all we want as like patients. We want you, we want like people in the ER to see us as, we want everyone to see us as, 
as people, we're humans. We're like your brothers, sisters, neighbors, daughters, moms, like that. We're more than that. What? Oh, that's what I wanted to say about the. Um, your shirt could say. I love them. Your shirt could just simply say, I love everybody because everybody's an addict. I know. And that's, oh, that's another you know, thing when. um We're all addicts. When I was talking to Avery's family about the wristbands, I said, I said, I, I, the way I wanted to package the wristbands, I said, I wanted to, I want every wristband to represent like someone that we lost because I get really upset. Like when, when, mm -hmm. when my friends are just a Facebook post for a week, because they're, they're so much more than that. They're like, so I wanted people to, if they want to send in like a picture of their loved one and like how they lived, what they were like, like, what they were, they, mm -hmm. my friend, Sasha, I think that's mm -hmm. the one I sent you. Um, she was my closest friend that I lost and mm -hmm. she is, yeah, I got that. She was so artistic. I have that right here. And she started, decided, she decided she wanted to be a tattoo artist and she had just got into college too, which just hurts me so much because mm -hmm. she, she left my, how old was she? She was 27 and she wasn't, I was living wow. in sober living and I didn't want her to be alone in a hotel. So I said, you could come mm -hmm. stay with me. And she said, I have to go to school t tomorrow. And I said, you're not, I know what you're doing. And she's like, she's like, I'm not going to die. Like, I mm -hmm. promise. I, I'm like, you can't promise me that. Like, you just, you can't promise me that. And she never came back. Right. And with fentanyl now. It know. happened. And she. Was it fentanyl? Yeah. She, her phone was off. And then everyone was, everyone was like, well, she probably sold her phone. And I'm like, no, I was getting worried. And then after like a couple of days, everyone was getting worried. And everyone started, and my sponsor, who was also her sponsor, started calling around to the hospitals and the morgues. And they, she described her, and they were like, "We've had her for a couple of days." And she went into a place in Atlantic City, hmm. and I don't know who she was with. I don't know what happened. Like, no one knows the full story, but she didn't come out of that apartment. And she, I know hmm. she didn't want to die. She She just got into college. I know she didn't want to right. die. And that's what's happening. Like. All these statistics, yeah. someone, a name and someone is behind every overdose, like a person, like a, an amazing person. Right. And that's what I want people to, to realize. Right. So I'm, if I wanted people to, to, if anyone wants to send it to me, it's I heart an addict, or you can see it on I love an addict.org. If you want to send me a picture and every wristband can represent somebody that we lost because we're losing people every day. And I'm just, hmm. I can't, I don't know what to do because I, I have to do something because, and what well, I can do is try to change the system. You do know you are doing something. You are doing something and that's, that's all you can do. And I think each one of us individually probably aren't moving the needle a lot, but as a collective group of exactly. advocates, I think we can make massive changes. Um, well, how, how do people reach you? What's the best way to contact you if someone has questions and follow up from the show? Um, I get you can go to um, iloveanaddict.org. And then if it's if you want to contact uh, me, it'll go to me. Um, it's that's iheartanaddict at gmail. That'll be on it. So if you just go to the iloveanaddict.org, uh, if you contact that page, you will be contacting me. Oh, and then Avery wanted me to say that. Okay. She wants to, she wanted to do a get, she wants the proceeds to this 
obviously to help addicts and we were going to scholarship detox beds, but she also on, she has a celebrity wish list for the wristbands. And then she wanted to do a dance marathon and have all the performers be people in recovery. So, so all the performers. Yeah. So she's, oh my God, she's an angel. She's, we should all think like children. They're so like, how old is she? She's going to be nine. uh, She's going to be nine on Halloween. She's so sweet. It's great to be that age, so, to be and a big, a big thinker. Because as you get older, you tend not to think big. I know, and she, it glows in the dark. Her wristband, she designed it. I'll find that out here. In a <laughs> well, listen, I enjoyed um, talking oh, to you again. Yes, thank um, you so much. I admire what you're doing, and um, yeah, we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, we have never-ending work ahead of us because. I think it'd be nice to envision a world where there was no addiction and substance use distress, but the reality is that that's a world I probably won't be alive to see. I know. I just, unfortunately, I just want the next generation. I just, if I can make it better for them, my kids, when I look at them, I just want, I want to make it like you said, the whole mental health package where it my my kids don't have to look mm-hmm. to substances to self-medicate, but if they do, I want them to know that I love them and I support them and that we, ca- it, it's right. not, it's a determining factor. You're like, you can get through it. It's, it's hard, but you can get through it, you know? So that's what I just, I you just, I, you have to get through it Yeah, because, and there's many different ways. Well, to- listen, I really, really, Honored to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate your advocacy and your passion. And um, our paths will cross many times. I so know. I'm, not worried about I'm so that, happy but, um, I met you. Again, honored to have you on the show. Yeah, this this was a good conversation. I I like the podcast because I just get to meet some really neat people. And uh, I learn something every episode. That's the beauty of doing a podcast. And actually being on podcast is, is enjoyable as well. If I can walk away and just have a few nuggets of wisdom I can steal from my guests, then... I selfishly benefit as well. Yeah, you're great. I'm <laughs> well, listen, so thanks for your time. And um, well, I appreciate all your support. Okay. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you very much.